Hello, welcome to Dance Futures, the podcast that discusses dance as a way of life with people who've made it central to theirs. My name is Dr. Ruth Pethybridge, self-confessed dance geek. And every week, as well as talking with my brilliant interviewees, independent dance artists, all of them, I will be sharing some of my excess of enthusiasm for some aspect of dance theory, history or philosophy. I'll also be checking in every episode with my finger on the pulse, aka Robin Alvarez, performance artist and recent dance and choreography graduate. Dance has always been part of human history, but what might it become in the future? Joining me to discuss this and much more this week is Gilly Kleiman, a choreographer working in various guises and a sometime academic based in Newcastle. I have met Gilly in various roles and she is one of those people who, if she has something to say, I listen up because I know it is going to be important or um, provoke a response or insightful um, or come at it from a, a different angle. So. Um, As another lockdown is announced across the UK, which is a huge blow to the dance sector and to all of us who love to move with others, Gilly's interview, though recorded in the summer, offers us some useful alternative perspectives and as she puts it, new thoughts, which is surely what we need right now. So after a few technical hitches, here we are. Hello. This is going to work, isn't it? Yeah, man. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all I can say is the sense of achievement when you've had tech issues is perhaps, is perhaps worth it. Worth the wait. Mm, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Gilly Kleiman, to the Dance Futures podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Um, so I feel like there's so many things I would like to talk to you about and that you are a super articulate um, advocate for dance in a way that I find really um, provocative and inspiring. And so I'd like to like this to be a chance to kind of speak about stuff that matters to you, I guess. Um, but as a way into that, it'd be useful for listeners and for me just to have a sense of how you would define your practice. So I know that some people I've spoken to really work within the confines of what something recognisably dance, if you know what I mean. But for you, I think there might be a kind of broader sense of what that is or how it's informed by ideas of dance and choreography. Yeah, um, I mean, I... I... If someone asks me what I do, uh, I, yeah. I, f- I find that anyway a, a terribly loaded and complicated question um, because of some of the things that I spend time thinking about. Yeah. Um, so I normally say I'm a choreographer um, and use that as an umbrella to mean many things, which at the moment means mostly sitting at my computer. <laughs> so if I think about what I practice, what I practice is computer work that's that's what I do um and um that sits in relationship to things that might happen in a studio or might happen in conversation with others or might happen in environments associated with teaching and learning um yeah yeah so that um, I find that really interesting and useful, that that thing of sort of uh, noticing what it is you're actually doing, you know, because it's easy for us to 
have a label and then go well actually what are we actually doing here and at the moment obviously there's a lot perhaps more computer work for many of us who might have had more physical practice previously but is that a, is that a shift for you in terms of no not, not really or is that, not, was that no. always yeah yeah not really I mean I think I think there's a narrative that goes oh well what choreographers and dancers really want to do is be in the studio all the time and um and that that's the same for everybody equally and mm-hmm. I think I've participated in that before and said oh well you know I have to do all this fundraising or I have to do all this writing or I have to have all these meetings um so that I can have more time in the studio and actually if I'm honest with myself I don't always find the studio the most enjoyable place to be um mm-hmm. I I like to think new thoughts like that's that's the most fun for me and yeah. those thoughts might be something to do with cognition or they might be something less um like verbalizable or something but mm-hmm. I, I like to think new thoughts and I like to be with others when they're thinking new thoughts and being in the studio isn't the only place where those things happen um yeah. so being at my computer and reading the internet having conversations on twitter writing um having uh meetings with people either in person in in the olden days or (laughs) online um teaching or being taught being in workshops leading facilitating all of those things are also sites for me to think new thoughts about dance choreography and the other things that I'm interested in um yeah so the studio isn't I I think I think that's a bit of a sort of weird a weird ploy there's there's something going on there about like the economics of dance as well that plays into that but also the romanticization of of being an artist in, in whatever yeah form. and it's also yeah absolutely and there's there's a kind of um there's a kind of almost like a fetish isn't there of the dancer in the in the studio in the leotard you know or this kind of idea of what that is that as soon as you invoke those words dancer and choreographer you know you're sort of um working with and against those ideas um definitely but obviously there is a through line in terms of like you said an interest in dance and choreography where did that begin with you having a physical practice or moving or was it was it more of that kind of choreographic outside I suppose I'm curious about people's ways into this world, whether that's where whether that's where you're sitting now as someone who's thinking about it more than doing it or um yeah, but was that what was your sort of way into that interest? How did mm. that find you or that meeting place in your life? I mean, I think I would probably say that I the think the thinking about it is the doing it. So there's no Absolutely, there isn't a yeah. distinction for me in that in those terms. It's just that different people have different ways of accessing that thinking Um, yeah I think I think one of the things that I'm interested in fessing up to and I think might be useful for us all to fess up to is that the reason we work in dance because is because at one point in our lives for most of us dancing was the best thing we could do like it was the most fun it was something that we enjoyed more than all the other things yeah and if that wasn't true then we wouldn't do dance yeah. So I, I think there's a weird thing where because um, at least I was educated in a time where to be entrepreneurial was key and that hasn't stopped. 
So to, mm-hmm. to be, to, in order, you, you have to demonstrate entrepreneurial skills in the field of art. So you, so to do that, you have to, you, so there's this funny thing that happens where we have to acknowledge what we do as work and mm-hmm. in order to be for something to be valued as a, as work it needs to be hard so it needs to be difficult yeah. painful extractive um like it needs to exist as work under the sort of capitalist framework we live in in other domains yeah so then we have to sort of not like dancing in order <laughs> to tell people there's value in this in yeah. order to make space for ourselves to in capitalism find a way to be dancing more and to be able to be making social political contributions through dance yeah absolutely and that there's also within that there's a notion of of sort of yeah like you say if dancing is fun or it's sort of trivialized then then where where is its place and what is its role it's going to always be sidelined to this kind of other um realm that isn't yeah that isn't given value like you say I think it's interesting because a lot of this podcast um you know like I said there's a lot of people advocate really advocating for dance and wanting to get that message across um of how many kind of brilliant resilient uh skills it gives you and and all the uh the kind of transferable skills that that that's there especially at the moment um with what's been going on in the sector you know to sort of not be defined solely by it as a physical practice Mm. um and yet also there is something about yeah the root of it like you say I love that reminder that yeah at some point it was just I really remember my own choice of going to university and going well there's absolutely nothing three years seems like a lifetime right then so I was Mm. like there's absolutely nothing else I can imagine doing for three years Mm. how am I going to do anything else and that was what drove what drove that choice um so it's really nice to be reminded of that I think like I think there's a there's an undoing that happens when we undo the pleasure of dancing that isn't Mm. really necessary and I think of there's an activist and writer called Adrienne Marie Brown who has a book called Pleasure Activism and by my bed by your bed great I haven't I haven't read it but I've listened to lots of podcasts of her talking about it and I think there's something about affirming pleasure that is is not just necessary but is actually quite politically radical absolutely um, and yeah. not always identifying ourselves by like not sort of martyring ourselves to work and saying well work why are we living if all we're doing is like trying to work really hard what and and that's not to undo the difficulty of doing dance stuff or like no. particularly of the kind of work that I make which is um experimental in one way or another like it is genuinely trying to um generate new human knowledge in a in a in a very serious way like it's really trying to look around the world and think about what what new things are are emerging out of human life that we can consider and work with in a in a in a serious way um but the pleasure is part of it. And if it's not there, then honestly, why do it? Yeah. You don't have to. Which... <laughs> yeah. Nobody, Nobody's forcing you to dance, guys. But I do also <laughs> think that, like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have that feeling of, like, oh, well, I had to do dance because nothing else, you know, nothing else right. would have made sense. I did dance yeah. because I wanted to do dance and there's complicated, like, sort of psychosocial reasons around that. But I do think we need to... Um, 
I, I think that that mystique is also worth picking at a bit because if we have that then it undermines what we are doing um and it I I, I think like oh well I couldn't do anything but dance no dancers can do all kinds of things that people who are trained in dance either like through the conservatoire system or um like non-vocationally or in in the university system like we're we're equipped to do all kinds of stuff and that and that dancing that that experience of dancing I sometimes think like what if every um care care worker did like uh, a contact improvisation course yeah like so much more would come out of that contact that and also maybe in pleasure in delight in in finding out as well as like oh well I just have to shift this really heavy um person from here to there and this is actually quite difficult and I've only got a minute and a half to do it and this is all really rubbish like there might be other things possible that emerge out of that and I think yeah one of the things I've been really thinking about is that like you know when I'm when I when I hear things like oh well you don't have to do dance so I, I sort of find myself in these complicated knots it's like no it's true that I don't have to do dance stuff it's true that I could do something else but actually the system promised me that this would be possible and and universities and other training providers need to do that they need to there's there's all kinds of complicated things that are way beyond the actual like interaction between like teacher students curriculum degree there's all kinds of complicated things that set us up in such a way that like the, the field itself does it as well the field of dance says it is possible to come and work in dance it's not that hard this is how you do it and unfortunately I think that um, there are lots of promises made by the field by organizations in the field that say if you only do it this way then it'll be really easy and simple for you and just do it just do it just learn from other people who've done it when actually you know there are all the all the pressures that exist elsewhere in society all the discrimination all the problems with the meritocratic framework we are part of they also exist in dance so I I, I think it is really worth like I'm really interested in how people might enter dance and leave dance and come back to dance with something else or how we might avow and um, value people who are a dance artist or a choreographer or an artist or a dance person and something else rather Mm -hmm. than saying well you just haven't quite made it well, no, I've made it. I'm doing something else. What's it got to do with you? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's such a. I think that is such a useful point. And it's also um, we're we're never just one thing, right? Any of us, anyway. Um, so then it does again come down to this notion of value a little bit. And I think for me, something I on so on your um, you've recently done a web residency with um, Siobhan Davies, yeah, um, and. I really enjoyed that and I really noticed in your kind of critique of this work, this role of work in terms of identity about how I, through lockdown, realised how much I was perhaps over-identifying with my job role. So that was giving me a lot of my kind of self-worth. So seeing how that was suddenly felt really vulnerable in in the context of COVID, um, I felt at first really afraid um but then through that realization of how much I was putting how I was putting too much on that role of like yeah it feels good to say I'm a senior lecturer 
in dance and choreography mm. but part of the reason that feels good is not because of working hard but because of the pleasure and the luck that I feel to be able to like investigate this field that I'm really uh, driven to explore mm. um, but then also there was a sort of liberatory feeling around that vulnerability where it was kind of like, well, you know what? I also make other choices. Like you say, it's not the only thing that I do and it's not the only thing that I am. Mm. Um, and that was kind of freeing, I guess. Um, yeah, I remember once bumping into, I used to have this quite weird friend when I was a teenager. And I think, you know, he's quite clearly sort of an unusual person. Um, I'm only very vaguely in touch with him now, but we're really good friends. And then I bumped into him when probably we were about 21 and I hadn't seen him for a year and a half or something. And I said, so what, what, what do you do? Or I was probably a bit older actually to ask a question like that. And I think what I meant was like, are you studying full time or do you have a job and tell me how you make money? And mm-hmm. he said, ah, oh, well, I've got these two newts. And I've been looking after these newts. And I just thought, what is he on about? And now I want to be the two newts person. Yeah. I want, I want to, if someone asks me, what do you do? I want to be able to say the thing that is most giving me energy and m- most interesting me at that time. Yeah. So yeah. I want to be able to say, oh, I do an agony of agony and advice uh, radio show with my friend Marion for a volunteer run radio station or I deliver food parcels for East End women or I've really got a terrible glut of kale that I've grown in my front garden and I'm trying to think of as many recipes as possible to use the kale up do you know what I mean yeah and I don't want and I don't think that that undoes the fact that also you know I've got a PhD in dance studies and uh I have a national profile as a choreographer and I get to work with all these organizations and all these people and I'm a trustee of people dancing and all of the other things that I might want to say about or or that I feel give me some kind of kudos. Yeah, yeah. Because it doesn't really matter. And I'm also, I'm really aware that I'm in a position to say that now in a way that I wasn't 10 years ago. Yeah. And that's it isn't it you've got you in a way you can shape shift between those different things or um you know because of that yeah that, that some of those roles have maybe given you that kudos and that ability to therefore look at the other things in a different in a different way right totally and I also think I was thinking about this this morning like I just want to be honest about more honest about my actual ambitions mm-hmm. um and I think for a long time my ambition wasn't like what am I really interested in, in dance? Like, oh, I'm really fascinated. So right now I'm making this um, choreographic project with my friend, the choreographer, Hannah Buckley. um, And it's about the physical action of rocking. And we Mm -hmm. are both really interested in what the physical action of rocking is. And we've done, you know, research out with our field. So we've been looking at studies about like rocking and dementia or, um, uh, rocking in religion and I'm really interested and I used I remember feeling like that but a long long time ago about the things I was working on and then it quite quickly transformed to what I want is a gig at that venue or what mm-hmm. I want is to get that commission or what mm-hmm. I want is to be seen to be working with those people and 
And those were real ambitions for me, but they're so shallow. But unfortunately, mm. the infrastructure we're working, that's the only way to pursue the things. Um, but that's, that's super important in an educational context um, to be thinking that way round, right? To be going, what is it? Right down to the very micro uh, detail of a movement like you're describing that interests you, that kind of sparks that joy, as it were. <laughs> and starting from that place um, will mean that kind of what you're doing has a kind of um well it has a value because you're valuing it right and then mm. and then other people may or may not recognize mm. that value but but it's less tied up with how it's represented to the outside world I guess initially and there's a freedom there in the educational context to be able to do that mm-hmm. but what one at least I find and I really you know when I've been teaching undergraduates but particularly MA MA students I just I'm like come on what are you actually interested in not what you not not what you think I want you to be interested in what are you actually interested in because later on if you decide to um try to like sell touring work that you, you you your interests will start to be warped by the market necessarily yeah um because in in order for you to be able to get money to do your work and therefore buy yourself some time to do your work you're going to have to be able to articulate your interests against a market and and I like I wish I could sort of turn back time and sort of redo some of the things that I did because Mm -hmm. in order to be actually interested when I had the (laughs) space to be actually interested yeah, and any of my students listening will probably be laughing in recognition of, of of my own kind of, yeah, desire to say you might come in thinking that what you're allowed to study is one thing. And it's this particular history and narrative that we have of dance and that we understand, particularly those who come through a kind of A-level yeah. or B-tech um, route, although that's less and less the case these days. Um, and really my own approach is informed by cultural studies which has really allowed me to like break all that open and and enjoy my own interest in social dancing hugely and kind of actually go actually it's it's okay if I don't want to make big choreographies for the stage and actually where it's at for me is on the dance floor in amongst other people yeah um which it's very challenging right now (laughs) to be fair that that particular environment being so far away from from any reality um but you've mentioned also a couple of times now this that you're working with a friend yeah and I know that friendship is another thing that came up on the the web residency yeah. and it is one of the other things that you're sort of really thinking through yeah. um and there was a really interesting question that I guess I wanted to ask back to you that it was your own question about um how can we mobilize our friendships to be more uh, sort of disruptive of the status quo and and you were talking about friendships that overlap with uh sort of working lives yeah. does that yeah how would you do you ha- I mean do you ha- obviously you don't have a neat tidy answer to that but what are your thoughts currently on that no I don't I mean I've been doing some reading on friendship and there's this great book by Carla Bergman and Nick Montgomery called Joyful Militancy where they have a chapter about friendship or yeah, a lot of it is about friendship or like alternative kin making. And I found Mm -hmm. that text um, as a participant in the Marrickville School of Economics, which is a kind of programme of economics 
education, uh, artist-led economics education led by Beck Conroy. And it's been a really like amazing process for me. And we're in a second module, which is about kith and kin economics. So that's where I found that text. <laughs> and anyone can join the Marrickville School of Economics. So just in case you're listening and you want to learn about it, it's free. It's great. I really love it. We will put all the links up on the website for anyone who wants to check right. that out further. And uh, yeah, so I was having a conversation with another friend and we were talking about which which sort of domains of life we are each oriented towards. And she was talking about like her family, you know, the, the, the way that she sees herself in the world is in relationship to her family. And we were talking about another friend of ours whose orientation is towards their business. So mm-hmm. like they get up in the morning and they're, they're energized by their business. Like that's what interests them. And I think that I mostly orient myself towards my friends, which has benefits yeah. and disadvantages. Like I was thinking about that this morning as well, that when I was a child, I sort of wanted to get away from my family and always be with my friends. And my family is lovely. Like my family is great. <laughs> But I had this thing about being with my friends. God, I'm still like that today and I'm a mother (laughs) to my own children. (laughs) And I think like, I think my my ideas about friendship have really changed and grown um, and are still changing and growing as I practice friendship, but also as I try and like look at these things choreographically and um, with reading and talking. like this text by Bergman and Montgomery talks about friendship and freedom having the same root, which, you know, we can look at etymologies and then think, oh, well, of course, things like move around over hundreds of thousands of years. It's not, it doesn't mean they're tied together forever, but it is interesting to think about, like a friend is someone who you choose. Um, You choose to be in a kinship relationship too. And you choose each time in a way that is different than if you say if you know say you have a romantic partnership which is assumed like you kind of at some point you make the handshake and then the way to undo it is a decision yeah Um, whereas a friend a friendship is something you sort of have to keep choosing in a different way um and I'm interested in that um and I I live in a situation where like none of my immediate family lives anywhere near me like hundreds Mm -hmm. of miles away so my main network is my friends. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, ju- I'm just, yeah. And also, I, I mean, I, I, that, that blog post that I wrote about friendship, I like, I wrote like four versions of it before I was like, I was like, no, this is too much. I just need to say the main thing. Um, yeah. I, I think like there's something funny that goes on where we're like, uh, we in my professional life like the people who I'm closest to professionally are also my friends and sometimes you need to make like divisions and be like no we're going to spend this hour doing this work and then we can chat about whatever but I think also (laughs) like um valorizing that chatting about whatever as the work which also Mm -hmm. happens in some kind of activist spaces that I'm in where actually like to develop that kinship to develop that friendship provides the solidarity and intimacy intimacy necessary to actually get something done um and that was that's definitely recognizable in a in the context of creating 
performance together right as well um as a process in which like you say that generating the intimacy sometimes through physical and somatic Mm. practices as well as the talking um or indeed in lieu of um can be what makes or breaks that process yeah and I I I think there's a weird thing that I mean it's related to work like or the idea of work labor those kinds of things of like oh no well it's not hard enough you know to just Mm. we're we're just messing about you're not really doing any work but like recognizing that like just being together is the work and instead I think it also has a relationship to this question of the market that I've been sort of talking about that like um we need to demonstrate our workerliness and also we're trying to produce something kind of interesting to somebody else whereas maybe if we stayed in our friendship we stayed in the zone of the friendship um and the things that like enable that practice of friendship we would other work would would uh, manifest itself out of Mm -hmm. that practice um yeah that is different that is different than but but then you would have to you know I think we talk a lot about practice and practice can be quite a buzzword but actually like and we we can talk about process oriented uh, um, uh, product or choreography but actually if you are if you have already written what it's going to be and five venues have already bought your piece you're going to have to do something that's a sort of a bit what you said that was it was going to be so then Mm -hmm. that prevents you from maybe like staying in the thing that might manifest totally differently that that week um yeah and you have to make all kinds of decisions ahead of time which of course exists in friendship too like if you decide to go on holiday you're gonna have to make some decisions and that is part (laughs) of your practice of friendship you know how you negotiate those decisions who those decisions get pinned on later how kind you are about the effects of those decisions (laughs) further down the line (laughs) like all of those things are part of the relationship um, yeah, it's so interesting what you're saying about choice, because I remember um, in the days when I hung out in the office with my dear colleagues, um, four of them here at Falmouth University, and having this realisation of like, the, in the division of my time of my life, how much time I spent with these four people who I hadn't actually, I'd been brought into relationship with through the work, mm. you know, I hadn't sort of chosen them. And I am so grateful and lucky again that I feel now I can call them all friends Mm. as well Um, and but there's definitely a shift in terms of how some of some decisions are navigated um, where you can find yourself pulled by market forces or institutional agendas and if you it's so interesting hearing what you're saying if I think if I come at it from a place of friendship um, then just even the tone of that decision-making process is very, very different. Um, and I'd like to think that by and large, we kind of manage that, um, manage that shift uh, between those states quite well. But, um, but obviously sometimes they, the market forces and, and the friendship rub up against each other. Um, it, so yeah, that's really fascinating. It just made me realise that I haven't thought this thought before. New thought. Um, so like my my family is from Israel I was born in Israel and my dad is from a kibbutz which is a kind of was a kind of commune it's the the kibbutz movement I mean the kibbutzim the plural of kibbutz have changed a lot even in my lifetime um and it just occurred to me that in Hebrew the word for friend 
and the word for member of something mm-hmm. they're the same word interesting so like a member of the kibbutz you would say you would use the same word to say the members and the friends and I, I don't know why that suddenly occurred to me of like yeah. you sort of agree to be together um and there's there's also this podcast that I listen to called Call Your Girlfriend, whose strapline yeah. strap is the podcast for long distance besties everywhere. And they they've just published a book called Big Friendship, which I also haven't read. I seem like a kind of person who would <laughs> who reads books, but I don't really. Um, <laughs> just look like one of the people who, who would. reads books. Who anymore? reads books? I do. <laughs> Academics reading books? No yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no time for that. Um, <laughs> Uh, so they've been doing all these podcasts about friendship as well in a non-academic way in a more like personal yeah. way and yeah. thinking of, they've been thinking about like how do you do a friendship breakup how do you mm-hmm. how do you like do, is it weird to go to therapy for your friendship and actually like I I think very seriously about friendship and I get very upset if friendships aren't working and I'm I, mm-hmm. but not everybody feels like that not even yeah. some of my friends you know that's not always like yeah. a a given yeah. and yeah so, so I'm thinking about this project that I'm doing called friend um, which isn't yeah. my first project about friendship but this is a project where I am making a solo for other people non-professional performers to which has been a big bit of my work over the past like six or seven years um yeah these people will perform the work in their home to an audience of only their friends so this kind of ties together some of the things I've been talking about so it's a piece that doesn't exist for an open market so nobody will see it It, there will be no video of it um that nobody is going to buy a ticket because you know it's an invited audience um so it's still a bit complicated in terms of how I might actually continue with the project after I have finished this pilot phase that I'm doing and one of the things that I've really been thinking about is what performance is it possible to do in front of your friends? Like what is enabled Mm -hmm. by that relationship Mm -hmm. called friendship and what is actually inhibited by that relationship called friendship? Because you remove the sort of, of, sort of objectifying apparatus of the theater um, and you come into intimacy and even in a different way than going to see a mate in a community dance performance where, where there's like a sense of like distance or like um, uh, a responsibility that exists elsewhere Whereas this is like really on this person to host and perform the work in their home to their friends and doing and having these interactions with people who are participating in the project and them saying, even in the imaginary, even when they just imagine some people there, they felt self-conscious in front of their friend or they felt like they really wanted to do that bit or this bit of material or this experiment in front of this particular friend and really trying to think about how the choreography itself might amplify um, or um, question or put under tension this relationship called friendship in a productive way. Yeah, and I think, I I know you've been thinking about these things, you know, way before sort of COVID-19, but it does seem like drawing on friendships and those intimate uh, groups of people that we know and have relationships with is is one of the kind of key resources um, and ways that we're going to have to explore you know being together mm-hmm. really um, 
now that other kind of more anonymous and, and big scale things are less um, safe and available mm. to us. Um, Gilly, I would love to talk to you Eve, for a much longer time, but um, <laughs> as we're sort of running to the end of um, the interview and just because this is a podcast called Dance Futures, and I know that you've been involved in the freelance task force yeah. that was set up as a response to COVID, I wondered whether we could just um, touch on maybe any of the kinds of issues that are being raised by that or demands that maybe demands is too strong a word but you know it would be nice to think we could make some about the the future of dance or and choreography and that and that area of live performance mm. going forward do you have any thoughts on that oh or? definitely I mean the freelance task force <laughs> is a very complicated and unwieldy experiment so I definitely can't speak for the whole freelance task force at all because it's like 160 people who are doing mm-hmm. things in a very um, varied way and mostly it's oriented towards theatre. So there are a few of us who come from dance or like experimental performance worlds, but most of the people are in like proper theatre, like plays and that. Um, mm-hmm. Proper <laughs> theatre. <laughs> what would you mean with like, with like written A script, script and then someone else oh says the words God. and then another person, what? you know, like I just, it's wild to me. It's wild. It's another word. You know, there's some even like people off the telly in it and everything. Um, oh, wow. oh, yeah. Very <laughs> exciting. Um, but the the main th- well, I've been thinking about um, redistribution. So mm-hmm. my main goal, and I, I say this everywhere, right? And I'm starting to see it in other people's bits of text after I've said it. But I just want yeah. I want to like TM this um, strapline. But what I want is more art. <laughs> you go, yeah, more artists making more decisions about more resources, because we're actually mm-hmm. we're just yeah. like many other sectors: education, care, health social work lots of other sectors it's no longer the people who are actually doing the practice who get to make decisions about how those resources are used um, Mm -hmm. and what actually happens so I think that that's what I am really interested in so that means given that we're not going to get any more money from the government and the experiments around private giving have roughly failed over the past 10 years there's been a big push for that and it hasn't really worked um, I think we need to think really carefully about the resources that we have in our sector in dance, which include knowledge, buildings, relationships, um, uh, human power. We need to think about how to distribute those more equitably for um, the people who are actually doing the practice, whether they're professional artists or non-professional artists and participants, dancers, whoever. And the other thing that I really want is I want everyone everyone like really everyone to be able to take part in culture in the way that they want to mm-hmm. and that me- that means lots of things but it definitely means me having to deal with some of my hypocrisies around being an expert so yeah. i if i if i want everybody to do what they want that means i have to not be the arbiter of what is the right thing to do and i really need to get to grips with what that means for my practice and i need to encourage my peers who also participate in these hypocrisies quite visibly. You know, it's, it's very easy to see how it happens in any festival, any venue, any uh, dance organisation, how those hypocrisies are being practised. So we, yeah. we need to unpick them and get, used, and get used to the idea that we won't be the experts. And of course, this is all very much tied into the work and money and status and identity. And for me, the only way out of this, the only real way out of this 
is a universal basic income. Mm -hmm. So until we all have the material security to use our time, at least in part, the way, in the way that we want to, we will continue to be unable to make decisions about our cultural lives. And I, th I think that's, it's a very serious thing. Um, and the more I think about how the art infrastructure functions and how power and resource work there and how there is plenty of culture, including plenty of dancing that happens outside of the subsidized or commercial dance sectors, there's loads of dancing that goes on until we provide everybody with the resource to be able to take that dancing up in the way that they choose, then, mm -hmm. then we don't have democracy around dance. Yeah. Wow, Gilly, that is a, it's a really powerful and thought-provoking um, note to finish on. And um, thank you for all your insight and all your work and all your, I, th I feel like we need a little bell for like new thoughts because I've definitely had a few <laughs> whilst listening to you, like ding, new thought. Um, and um, we will put up links to your blog and website so that people can read more of your excellent writing and um, keep up the good work, not work. <laughs> Stuff. <laughs> Stuff. Thanks, Ruth. Thanks so much for um, being here, Gilly. What a pleasure. Speak soon. Bye. Bye. Hello, Robin. Hello, how are you? We got there in the end. We did it. <laughs> I feel like it's been ages since we spoke, but obviously in episode land, it's only last week. Yeah, I know. In episode <laughs> land, it's a whole other universe. Yeah. Um, what were your takeaways um, from the interview with Gilly? I just loved, I think what, I mean, she's great to listen to. She's like so full of knowledge and wonder, but um something that really struck me was her talking about our um the fact that we need to focus on our friendships and not have that constant um focus on romantic relationships or like that seeking for that sort of love interest when you've got however many loves in your life in in all your all of your friends who might have known you since you were a kid or like you've gone through all these you know crazy times with and I think sometimes for me personally I've realized that my focus hasn't been on those friendships as much as it should have been and yeah um yeah that was a really really important thing for me to learn yeah I agree I think I think it struck me as well and and kind of since then I've been it's like one of those things where you, you haven't seen someone before and then you see them once and then everywhere you go they're there and yeah, it's like yeah. suddenly I've just been noticing all these things about uh, friendship and female friendship in particular and sort of wondering about these like networks that women create these supportive networks um, mm. and how much energy we can put into those instead of potentially um, mythologizing these romantic connections mm. um, yeah I found that really powerful and on that I think that means that I think you've got a little treat in store for us <laughs> it, yeah it inspired me to write a song from a, my friend it's a bit of a sad song it's an apology for being okay for not putting that energy into the friendship that I should have um but yeah I can I can show you that now if you'd like <laughs> excellent yeah go for it can't wait <clears throat> I know I haven't always done right I know this 
this isn't just the first time you said it hurts i said honey me too i thought i needed it more than you because you know there's a special place in my heart if only i could go back and restart i'm sorry i don't know what else to say just promise me that we'll be okay Cause I don't wanna say The missing you keeps me away But just know that I go because we can all just be obsessed with you now <laughs> finger on the pulse says be obsessed with me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's great that was really really lovely and where can people hear more of your um singing and music in general if they want to well um i'm in the process of setting up my own page but if people okay. want to just follow me on instagram it's robin underscore alv um and yeah and then there should be more to come hopefully Fabulous. Well, we look forward to that, Robin. Thank you so much. Thank you. Catch you next time. Talk soon. Bye. 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 So I wanted to keep this geek out brief um, because it's been such a rich episode and I feel like there's a lot to process from what Gilly brings up. Brings up. But um, basically, I couldn't resist a link in part of the discussion to an interest of mine so I might fail at being brief um but hey people it's the penultimate episode and if you've gone the distance with me this far then you deserve the full geek experience (laughs) so um Gilly mentioned the book Pleasure Activism The Politics of Feeling Good by Adrian Marie Brown um and this is one I have been reading and dipping into over the last year or so um, and I guess now more than ever in 2020, 
this idea of feeling good, of trying to experience pleasure in spite of everything is perhaps more um, political than ever. Um, so towards the back of the book, there is a conversation with Suge Hernandez and it's called Working the Pole. And in this, she talks about taking up pole dance as a queer Latina woman of colour has helped her to find a renewed sense of self and a deep appreciation for her body. Because, wait for it, as she says, thick thighs save lives. Now, this is really true in pole in the sense that um, I have sometimes been envious of um, the way that certain body parts can kind of provide cushioning or grip in a way that parts of mine can't and I think I've really enjoyed that that has sort of changed my gaze on um, my own body perhaps as well in terms of its fleshiness or something Um, anyway uh, Suge writes I realised I needed to love my body so hard, harder than I can imagine, so that I could trust it enough to hold myself up in the air. I had to find this deep synchronicity between mind, heart and body for them all to say in unison, Suge, we can do this shit. So, as an amateur pole dancer myself, as I've probably just given away with my uh, discussion about thighs there um I relate to this and that's not entirely because of what she says but um definitely there is I think something in my experience of learning pole is something that is common to a lot of amateur experiences of learning to dance where you look at something you're aiming for and think, God, I'll never be able to do that. Um, but then somehow you do, or you do something close enough to it to experience um, that feeling of achievement and also a kind of mastery over your own body and that striving um, for something. I, I really don't like the expression pushing yourself, but there is something about going beyond what you think is possible. And I'm sure that that feeling and indeed watching other people take that journey is part of what makes Strictly Come Dancing so popular, that and the sequins. Um, meanwhile, over in Dance Geekland, of course, I found some scholarship on pole dance and exotic dance forms more generally that I've been really um, enjoying as I navigate the conundrum that is being a feminist practicing a dance form that seems to be so inhabited by the male gaze. Now, the origins of pole dancing, um, like all starting points, are somewhat vague, but some say it may be linked to maypole dancing, for example, as a pagan symbol of fertility, um, or alternatively, with the um the hoochie coochie dancers of America in these kind of traveling fairs in the 1900s um and then we have this sort of chinese circus version of it as well all of which were way before the first lap dancing club arrived in the UK in 1990s skip forward to the 2000s and 
pole dance has had a massive resurgence in popularity as a form to kind of teach and learn and with its whole own pedagogy and um it sort of almost had a rebranding um perhaps a moral whitewashing um and has been refer- is referred to a lot more as pole fitness so it's kind of got a more wholesome tone perhaps in order to make it more acceptable in order to make it more populist um and i find this fascinating and i'm not the only one i'm working on a um small project at the moment with a colleague of mine at Roehampton University to explore some of this stuff um that's Dr Sarah Houston um but also um Kerry Griffith in her book Femininity Feminism and Recreational Pole Dancing has explored some of these ideas and describes the concept of impression management in terms of how women taking pole classes in the UK um describe what they do to friends and family or even keep it a secret but if they are talking about it, they're talking about it in such a way as to make it more um, acceptable somehow to, and to avoid the cultural stigma that might be associated with it as a form. And I really enjoyed um, reading this this book, which features lots and lots of interviews. Um, that's where the data comes from, as it were. Um, there's others that look more into the kind of uh, legal and corporate side of um, exotic dancing, which I don't have time to go into now. But um, I enjoyed reading it because I noticed myself doing this as well. And when I tell people, students, uh, colleagues, mums at the school gate, um, which I don't make a habit of, but it comes up sometimes in terms of what I might have been doing with my time, that I'm also realising that I might not straight away just say that that's what I'm doing um and I guess there's a kind of yeah Gilly used the expression tying herself in knots and I guess I tie myself in knots a bit about why I do it and that's why I might be others judgment about it because it's um it does come with stigma but I feel like that stigma is something also to do with kind of reductive attitudes towards female sexuality and pleasure and what that means and how we as women can inhabit it and how particularly as a a slightly older woman perhaps um 40 plus (laughs) um what that might mean as well to engage in this art form so um yeah there's a great hashtag pole dance over 40 and proud that i follow that's um been really interesting Anyway, that's a huge um, amount of stuff to unpack around gender and the male gaze and feminism and sexuality, all whilst dancing around a pole and generally getting dizzy and sometimes turning upside down. (laughs) But um, what I love about the stuff I've been reading about this um, as well is that it's another example, really, of how academia can embrace any aspect of dance and investigate it and study it and go deep into it as a cultural practice and yeah so I guess take what you love take what you love doing and you can turn it into object of study if that floats your boat if you're a if you're a sort of dance geek like me then life and work don't stay separate for that long but um if that's not your vibe then just keep doing what you love 
even if it's in the confines of your own living room for the next month or so. And um, I went to my last pole class before, um, my last in-person pole class before this second lockdown today, and I am thinking of all the dancers, uh, especially the freelancers who have worked so hard to um, stay afloat in this time. And um, we will be back. Hey everyone, it's Sophie here. I'm the creative producer for this podcast. Uh, I'm just here to say that if you've enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe, rate and share. And also follow us on Instagram at Dance Futures Podcast and look at our website, dancefutures.wixsite.com forward slash podcast. Thanks.